Well, good morning. Such a joy to be in the house of the Lord, with the people of the Lord. What a privilege we have to gather week by week. And I hope it'll be found out that we're even more faithful than the postman. You know, come rain or shine, we just want to be God's people Sunday by Sunday. There are moments in the life of the church that mark the church. There are moments that we celebrate, baptisms, weddings, children dedication, picnics, celebrations that we have. And there are others that we mark, but with a bit of wistfulness. And we have one of those occasions this morning. Patty Ziegenmeyer has been a member, faithful, longtime attender of this church. And time and circumstances have become such that she is moving with her son and family to Oregon. And so this is her last Sunday with us. And I have asked Patty to come forward. She's going to come forward and stand down front here. And I've asked the elders that are here to come. And we would like to pray a, a prayer of blessing and dedication over her. And so if the elders could come forward at this time, and I'm going to ask uh, Jerry who is the chair of our elders, to lead in a prayer of dedication. So where did Jerry go? He's right now, okay. Lord Jesus, um, we do um, thank you for the blessing that, that Patty Ziegenmeyer and her, her family have been to us here for uh, 40, 46 years. Um, Father, we have uh, received uh, so much from her. She has uh, blessed us um, with uh, helping deliver many, many children in this community. Um, working at the hospital, serving her family, Father, and her faith, her faith and trust in you, Jesus. Uh, we, uh, we lift her up to you now, Father, uh, that she would be encouraged and um, looking forward to being closer to her, her uh, family, immediate family, Father. Um, it's a difficult time for us um, and for Patty, too, because uh, her family is here as well. And um, things change in life. And um, um, you, you know those changes. You, you're not surprised by any of them, Father. Um, but uh, we just thank you for blessing us with Patty. And uh, pray now that you would be able to bless Patty, Patty's family and Patty through her family. Um, and uh, pray, Father, that you would encourage her that she would understand uh, and be aware of your presence wherever she is, and uh, that you would bless the relationships that she's going, going to grow in at this point, um, that she can be closer to Freddie and her, and her grandchildren, Father, um, and the, the new friends she's going to make, Father, that you would prepare a way even now for her. Father, we thank you so much, and, and uh, we, we trust you Father, to uh, bless and keep Patty. And we pray all these things in her, in uh, your precious name. Amen.
Well, I'd like to add my words to those of Pastor Brian, just to say thank you to all who came and participated and helped and prepared and set up and took things down on Friday night. It was uh, just a wonderful evening. We were packed out. And I've, I don't think I've ever seen the parking lot so full of cars and people as it was on Friday evening. And so it was such a, a great evening of celebration. And we know that many people came from the community. And so our prayer is that they experience joy and blessing here and that this would open the door for further conversations between us and those that came. Um, but what a great time to celebrate on a beautiful evening. And uh, thank you again, Angie, and all the team. What a, what a marvelous effort they all put together. I encourage you just to make sure your cell phones are turned to silent at this time. Uh, so as we live stream the service, we don't want any interruptions. And let me take this time to say good morning to those of you joining us online. It's good to have you here. And we're glad that you have joined us for this time of worship and time in the Word. And I encourage you to wherever you are now to turn to your copy of God's Word and Matthew 18 as we prepare to enter into a time of study in his word. Well, Dr. Andrew Bonar was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s. He was an adherent of the Reformed tradition, and he was the younger brother of the famous hymn writer Horatius Bonar, that, whose songs you will still find in a little bit older hymnals of the faith. Andrew Bonar wrote many commentaries on the scriptures, and many of which are still available through the banner of Truth Trust. And he often used observations from nature to bring home biblical truths, one of which sheds light on the passage that we will look at this morning. As Bonar explains the situation, he says, those who tend sheep, which was a quite common profession of his day, know that sheep often wander off into the rocks of the hillsides and get into places that they cannot get out of. The grass on the mountains of Scotland, he says, is very sweet and the sheep really enjoy it. Thus they often finish the grass on one level and then they jump down to another level, often at a distance of 10 or 12 feet down and begin to eat when they realize that they cannot get back up again out of what they've jumped down into. And seeing their predicament and their inability to escape, the shepherd soon begins to hear the bleeding of the sheep in their distress as they jump from one level on the mountain down to the other. Well, they'll remain at that level for many days until they've eaten all the grass. And the shepherd knowingly waits until the sheep are so faint that they cannot stand, and only then does he put a rope around them and work and pull the sheep up out of the jaws of death. And an observer asked Dr. Bonar, well, why doesn't the shepherd go down when the sheep first get there? Ah, he said, the sheep are so very foolish that they would rush off and rush over the edge and be killed. And that is the way with men. They won't go back to God till they have no friends and have lost everything. And he concludes by saying, if you are a wanderer, I tell you that the good shepherd will bring you back the moment you have given up trying to save yourself and are willing to let him save you in his own way. Well, last week we began our study in the 18th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, and we saw that in this section that we're beginning, Jesus is going to take us through a series of teachings about what the church should look like, the new covenant community that he is forming, how the church is to interact and act both within and without, how they're to apply the principles of the gospel and we said at that time, these passages will be difficult as they have been found to be difficult in each generation of believers, but they're still an important section for us to study because they apply to each one of us who claim to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so he began this section using the illustration of a child who in ancient times had no rights, could not pursue his own agenda, and was completely dependent upon his family for everything. And it was that attitude of helplessness and dependency in a humbled and low status that illustrates the nature of saving faith. Just as a child depends upon a family for everything, so the Christian in childlike dependency is to trust in the Heavenly Father for life and all that is in it. And so as we saw this new Christian symbolized by this, this young one, the living child brings nothing of himself 
but only complete and full trust in the living God who saves us through Christ alone. So these little ones that are in this chapter are not so much little in a physical sense, but the spiritual children of God, the ones who recognize that they are powerless, that they are helpless in and of themselves, and that they're completely dependent upon the Lord for salvation and livelihood. Therefore, as we saw last week, Jesus said concerning these new believers, these little ones, that were to treat them with warmth and respect and dignity and train them in the ways of the Lord, were to receive them, he says. And not to do so will bring harm upon ourselves and harm upon them. And we're not to deceive them either. We're not to mislead them by our habits, our attitudes, our behaviors, by our wrong teaching, but to receive them and not deceive them. And we're going to build on that idea today because it goes on to say, what are we to do with those new believers who for whatever reason have wandered from the fold of God and have gone astray? And so as we continue in this passage in chapter 18 of the gospel according to Matthew, we as the people of God want to hear from the voice of God as he teaches what it is that we're to look like and how it is that we're to live as a church. And so as I invite you to stand, and as we read our passage for this morning, Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14, may the Lord give us ears to hear. And the beautiful and holy and truthful word of God says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We receive here the word of the Lord given to us for our instruction and edification. Let us receive it with joyful hearts in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we have just sung in song that you are faithful to your promise, we're thankful that that is so true and that it's the only thing that actually saves and holds us because you will always keep your word. And so, Father, as we sit now under the authority of your word, would you teach us? Would you be the lifter of burdens? Would you be the opener of hearts? Would you be the one who gives understanding to minds? Would you be the one who strengthens wills to walk in ways that are honoring to you? Father, we want to hear from you this morning, to meet with you through your word, as we humble ourselves before you now, in Jesus' name, amen. In the verses just before, in Matthew 18, verses 6 to 9, as we summarize, Jesus warns us not to cause these little ones, these new believers, to sin, not to cause them to turn away from Christ. And then it was, the responsibility was turned to us to fight against the sin that continues to indwell with us. We need to deal seriously with that sin. And woe to us if we do not, because that sin will have an impact both in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And we need to be sure that we're sensitive to our sin and be willing to forsake it and do whatever it takes to get rid of it. For if we find ourselves cherishing our sin and wanting to stay in our sin or maybe not even confessing our sin, is it that we actually belong to the Lord at all? Because he places his Holy Spirit within us that we would have the desire for holiness as he is holy and want to do whatever we can to walk with him. But it's also the recognition that we impact one another in how we live, how we walk, how we talk. And so we need to make sure that we don't cause others to stumble, cause others to misunderstand. And so we saw at the end of our time in the Word last week that we need to deal with sin. And dealing with sin will always be painful because we have to forsake things even now. But whether we deal with sin now or we wait till the final judgment to deal with it, there will be pain. It's just whether that pain will be dealt with in this life because of the cross or we'll deal with that pain eternally because we have rejected God's provision. So with all that as an introduction, as we think about the image of the, the sheep and Dr. Bonar's illustration and what Jesus is teaching us here, let's move into this passage of Matthew 18. And our first major point we see this morning is watching angels and believers. Watching angels and believers. And our text begins, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
And so we were told in the previous paragraph that we were to receive those that God is sending to us. We're not to deceive them. Now we have a third action verb, which is not to, at least as translated in the ESV, despise them. And the original word is katophroneo. It's a strong word. It means to hold in contempt or to even find repugnant. And I think how it's used in this context means to not ignore these little ones, these new believers, to take them seriously, to not ignore their needs or their priorities or to see them as a burden or see them as something that gets in the way. Do not despise these new believers because they may not understand everything about us or they may not understand our ways, but rather lead them in ways that will cause them to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't push them away, but receive and enfold them. Then in the song, If We Are the Body, the group Casting Crown sings about those that have tried to visit a church. They try to enter into a church. Maybe they're a visitor. Maybe they're in another town. And they find themselves scorned and rejected by the people in that local congregation. And they find themselves not welcome. And the chorus to the song asks this, But if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are his body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing? But he is the way. There is a way. So Jesus is exhorting us as he's challenging this new covenant community on what they will look like. He says, receive these new believers in my name, these young in the faith. Don't deceive them. Don't despise them. They're part of God's flock. Jesus says, I will build my church. And sometimes the way he builds it and those upon whom he builds it might not be our first choice. And thankfully so, because as God weaves and organizes the church together, he uses all those circumstances and backgrounds and talents so that we bump into each other and we learn to live in harmony with one another and we learn to apply the gospel with one another. Well, as the verse continues, for I, he go, Jesus goes on and says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So we have a blessing here, first of all, that those who may be despised, and the word that is used here in the ESV, that may be despised on earth, are loved and cherished in heaven. You ever have those days where it just seems like you just walk from one situation into another, and you get to the end of the day, and you think, does anybody really even care if I'm here? And we might feel despised on earth, but if we're in Christ, we're cherished and loved and adored in heaven as a place is prepared for us to go and be with the Lord forever. Now there's a mention here almost in passing an angel of, of angels, and there's a lot for us to consider. And we're going to consider one idea that some people have had from this verse that somehow there's this idea of guardian angels whereby a specific angel is assigned to a believer and is, accompanies that believer throughout life. And to that I would reply, while this verse certainly teaches on the reality of angels, it does not teach at least clearly the idea of guardian angels, which is more of a medieval concept that came centuries after the founding of the church. The word guardian isn't even in this passage. It's something that's brought in. And yet, very clearly, the passage does teach, teach some things about angels. So what does the Bible have to say about angels? And I think there we'll find it much more encouraging and the understanding of what this passage is intended to say. Now, obviously, we can't go into an exhaustive teaching on what the Bible has to say about angels, but we want to at least have some ideas about what it says. So, for example, angels, and you're going to be frustrated if you try to write down every passage and every reference I make here, okay? So just listen initially, and if you want to, go back and go online and look at the sermon again and get to take some more notes uh, about what... We're looking at just a broad overview, a 33,000-foot view of what the Bible has to say about angels. But briefly put, they are created beings. They are personal beings who have personality, will, and abilities. They are not just forces. They are created beings capable of personal relationships. There are different orders of angels, some who are even assigned to remain in the presence of God and just worship Him day and night. Some angels are used even in the revelation of the will of God 
and the revelation of his truth. And we see that in different places like in Acts 7 and Galatians 3. From his holy throne, God sends out angels to accomplish certain things. Among other things are judgment or acts of deliverance or proclamations, promises, declarations, things of that nature. There are some angels that seem to be assigned to be overseeing the activities of ethnic groups or people groups or even you might say nations, but nations as they're understood in the Bible, not as we might understand them in geographical senses today. We know that angels are used to gather people together for the final judgment, that angels can be both good and bad. There are, there are righteous angels, there are evil angels, and in fact, in our battle for holiness day by day against our sin, against the world, and against the devil, we fight against these wicked angels that do whatever they can to draw us away from God. And oftentimes, we turn on each other in anger and in fighting when actually the real enemy are these angelic forces that are influencing us and we need to turn our guns all together against them instead of focusing on one another the role of angels concerning believers is typically seen as one of rescue and service angels at times were used to rescue individuals such as when daniel was in the lion's den or when shadrach and meshach and abednego were in the fiery furnace Angels also set Peter free when he was held in prison as the believers prayed for his deliverance. So in general terms, angels are those who serve and watch over believers, the people of God. And we have many promises of that all throughout the scriptures. And in perhaps one of the clearest statements of the purpose of angels, Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So believers. So the primary focus of angels is to serve believers. And that is the primary meaning here. They have this blessed service of either being in the presence of God or being used by God to work among the people of God. As Charles Spurgeon says, the highest courtiers of glory count it their honor to watch over the lowly in heart. So angels, as they serve believers, are serving the purposes of God. But does this translate exactly to the idea of guardian angels? Does each believer have one angel that is assigned to him or her? And to that I would say, I don't think the scriptures clearly teach that, nor is it necessary that we embrace that, because in a general sense, if angels serve believers and angels are spiritual beings, they move quickly from place to place. And so perhaps a better way to think of it is angels serve us but not necessarily in a one-to-one -one correspondence, but more on the idea of a zone defense as needed according to the purposes of God. Since the number of believers grows day by day and has been since the church began, but angels do not grow in number day by day, perhaps it's just best to say what's clear in the scriptures is angels serve believers for the glory of God and let that fill our hearts with assurance. In fact, we may interact with angels at times unawares, according to the writers of, writer of Hebrews 13, where we may even entertain angels without even realizing it. I think one, one thing will be sure. On that last day when the veil is pulled back and God gives us the ability to see what he has done all throughout history and the redemption of his people, I think we'll be amazed and surprised and in awe about how often God used angels in our lives to protect, to guide, to lead all that we would stay safe and that we would worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more that our eyes are open to see all of that, no wonder we will spend eternity in praise to God for all the things that he did. Now, angels, in their, for their part, worship God. And in this mystery that is in Hebrews chapter 12, as we gather for public worship, there is a sense where we gather with what is already happening in heaven, and angels themselves are involved in our worship. It doesn't mean that we, we're going to see them. It doesn't mean that there's something mystical that happens, such as lucky charms or things like that. It just means that we are involved in the spiritual realm of worship. Read Hebrews chapter 12. That somehow when we gather, there is something that happens when we gather that cannot be duplicated when we're alone with the Lord. We gather, and it's as if we enter into the presence of God himself and enter into the worship that is going on in heaven. So we're not to worship angels. 
I know our culture at times is angels crazy. And we want to have images and pictures and stories and television shows and movies. And we need to not be informed by those things, but to be informed by what the Word of God clearly teaches. And in every case where an angel actually appears, there is fear. Do not be afraid. But then there is always the admonition, worship God. And that should be the focus then that we have. And so in Matthew 18.10, as these angels are watching over what is happening, of course they report to what is going on in heaven. This is what they were appointed to do. They're watching over believers. They catch the attention of these young believers who are starting to wander away. And I think where this can encourage us as believers today is that no matter where we are, we're never alone. Now, of course, our ultimate promise is that Christ has promised to be with us wherever we go. The Spirit has promised to indwell us wherever we go. But also there is a sense where these servants, that these, these angels that serve those who, who inherit salvation is at times angels are going to make an appearance, whether we see them or not, to protect and deliver us. And it will always be for the glory of God. Well, if we have watching then angels and believers, we get to our second point this morning, which is seeking. Some have gone astray. And as we said last week, that the kingdom of heaven, Jesus made clear, is only for those who humble themselves as a child and recognize their complete dependence upon the Father and receive his grace by faith. But God is also going to reveal something of his heart towards his people here. As we get to the next verse, verse 12, which says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And I love the image of the sheep and the shepherd. It is one that God employs often in the, in, in the scriptures, both in the New and in the Old Testament, where he is referred to as the great shepherd of his people. And I want us just to see a few examples so that we get encouraged that this idea of, of a great shepherd that watches over the sheep, which is us, is something that should encourage us day by day. For example, Psalm 100, verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Isaiah 40, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This idea continues even in the New Testament where Jesus boldly stands up knowing that he is fulfilling the signs and shadows, the, the prophecies, the the sacrifices, the offerings, the priesthood, the prop everything of the Old Testament knows that he's fulfilling it all, stands up in the Gospel of John and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Matthew 9, he tells us he has great compassion over the people because they are lost like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 12, he shows the value of sheep over people when he says, which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And it's the idea that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, that we can take care of the needs of saints if need be on the Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep because his blood pays for the eternal redemption of those that he came to save. So we get to see the good side, that God... In the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament is our great shepherd, but if he's the great shepherd, that means we are the sheep. And what does that mean then? Well, among other things, we're in a lot of trouble. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This idea is repeated in the New Testament almost word for word in 1 Peter chapter 2. So this idea is not a new idea as, as Jesus is presenting it here and says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. The worry is about these new believers who have come to faith and are starting to try to integrate into the body but for some reason or another they've gone astray. Maybe because the warnings of these verses were not heeded. They were mistreated by the believers when they came or somehow they were led astray falsely as the teachings of these verses say. Now, in my copy of God's Word, in the English Standard Version, it refers to this as the parable of the lost sheep. Because that title is not inspired by God, I propose a change. The verses themselves are inspired by God. 
The titles themselves are not. I would prefer something along the lines of the parable of the straying sheep. Because that word straying or astrayed is mentioned several times in this text. This sheep is lost, but not in the sense of not having salvation. This sheep is lost in the sense of having lost connection with the flock. Becoming disoriented, somehow wandering off, perhaps because of the sin of others, as the immediate context makes clear, or because of his own sin. But Jesus warns us and he says, look, the angels are concerned about what's happening on earth. Should we not be concerned as well? We, the church, the one that he's building, should we not take care of one another? And so he uses this illustration. That the man will leave the 99 and go off and look for the other one. Now, we don't need to worry about the 99. It was very common practice in those days for shepherds to work together. I saw this firsthand in our time in Jordan where you would see shepherds come together. They would move their flocks together. They would fellowship together. They would be at the front of their flock. The flocks would intermingle and eat and do what they needed to do. And then when it came time, the shepherd would give a call. And the sheep separated themselves out because the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's where Jesus gets that illustration. And so the shepherd is in front leading his sheep. And so there would have been shepherds working together. So if one goes off, the others would watch the sheep while he's looking for the lost one. And so it's helpful for us to keep in mind then that we, we take this parable and we put it along the whole counsel of God and we recognize that as it's applied to the church, we need the wisdom to know, well, how do we apply it in one situation? How do we apply it in the other? Because in the full counsel of God, we recognize that sometimes God says we'll do it this way and sometimes God says we'll do it this way. So we have an example of the prodigal son. Well, in this case, the prodigal son is the one who willingly rebelled against the father and went off. He went off to sow his wild seed and went off to live like the world, the flesh, and the devil and waste all of his earthly funds. But the father didn't go after him. The father waited for him to come to himself and repent and come back. The father didn't go after the son in that case. But here we have these young ones, these new believers that are straying. And God says to his church, don't despise them, don't deceive them, receive them. Deal with them gently. Perhaps it's in their naivety. Perhaps it's in their newness. Perhaps it's in their misunderstanding that they've wandered off. So go and get them before they get too far away. And when we think about the context, why did the sheep go away? Was something that happened with the mature sheep that were there? Was it a bad example that he followed? Did he just have curiosity and got the better of him? Did he just not have enough supervision? Remember, we looked at last week that believers, new believers, need good examples of older believers so they know how to follow and walk in the ways of God. Because as we saw in our opening illustration, sheep are prone to wander off, jump into ravines, fall and hurt themselves, get into messes which they cannot get out. I think all of us perhaps have known people that just tend to wander. You know, we sing in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We know ourselves. We don't watch over ourselves. We don't have others watching over us, as we saw in the passage this morning that we read in Hebrews chapter 3, which says, watching over one another daily and encouraging one another while it's still called today. Why? So that our hearts do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But here we have these new believers that have wandered off. Are they injured? Are they confused? Are they dismayed? But go and get them and bring them back. It was said of the actor Marlon Brando that he was so curious that he continued to walk off on his way into kindergarten to such a point that his sister Jocelyn had to take him to class on a leash to make sure that he arrived safely. Maybe at times we need to have, as it were, a spiritual leash where we, we keep track of one another and keep each other from wandering off and as sheep wander off, we need to bring them back into a nurturing, discipling, loving, teaching relationship. There's so many things that we think about as we seek to put into practice the passages that are here. And it requires wisdom, and that's why Jesus is addressing the whole church, because he's saying this is what the church needs to be living like, this is what the church needs to be doing. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced the idea of let's pray for prodigals. I hope you've been doing that. I certainly have. And think of those that have painfully walked away. 
And I think there's a parallel, but not an exact parallel with this passage this morning. I think this passage is dealing with younger believers. But at the same time, the concept is still there. Don't let them run away. Don't let them walk off. But then the warning that we have for those that have walked off, maybe for their own sin, maybe for their own reasons, maybe for their own foolishness, maybe for their own who knows what, is that they ultimately can't run away. They need to be running back to the truth. Psalm 139 says, where can we go from your spirit? The idea is nowhere. And so we need to warn the one who has been running away. Look, you're not running away from God. You're just running towards God. You can't outrun him. So just give up. Repent. And come back. But this new believer here perhaps isn't even aware that he's, he's lost. And so needs someone to come and bring him back into a nurturing, loving, discipling relationship. And then we get to our third point, which is rejoicing. The sheep have come home. Verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And if he finds the sheep, the text said, I think it could be translated, and when he finds it, because there's a sense of hope that because of how the verse ends, that God is not willing to lose any of his sheep. But in any case, the going and getting and bringing back requires effort, work, time, sweat, concern. There's concerned prayer offered. There's great energy exerted. There's worrisome thoughts, racing heartbeats, sleepless nights. But finally, the effort pays off as this man finds the stray sheep and brings him home, and there is rejoicing. Now, there's a comparative here. And in Hebrew language and the Hebrew way of thinking, you have a comparative here where it's not as if one thing is bad. It's just one thing is just in a particular context is so much better. So we have a comparative here where it says this man rejoices greatly. He rejoices more, as it were, over the 99 that did not go astray. But it doesn't mean that he stopped loving the 99 who remained faithful and stayed home. No, he's still happy over them, and he rejoices over them, and he's glad that they are there. It's just that because of the intensity of the action, the, the, the danger that is immediate, there is this joy of, at last, he has been found. We can think of a grieving family. They have a child that has lost his way coming home from school and cannot be found. And so the signs go up and the police are notified and the search goes on. Do, does that family love those other children at home any less? And of course not. But because of the emotional intensity, when the child is found, there is great rejoicing. Jesus is not saying there's greater value in the sheep that stray than those that stayed. It's just the joy that one that was in danger has been brought home. Now, in, in my own family, we, we learned this lesson in a deeper way a few years ago. We had returned from our time overseas, and we're now staying in the greater Minneapolis area as we were preparing to look for what our next place of service would be. And one day, my nephew Jacob just walked away from school. Now, he suffers from some personality disorders, and so the concern was deep about where he had gone or what had happened to him. And so when my brother called me to tell me that Jacob was missing, I dropped everything to run to be with him, and often we went in the car. We drove around for hours, starting at his school, trying to retrace his steps, trying to find out where he had been. Carol and Zach took off in another car, and they're going to different parts of town, and we're desperately trying to find him in this major metropolitan area. We went to gas stations and stores and shopping malls and parks and showed his picture everywhere. We kept in touch, but we kept missing Jacob until finally in one place we picked up the trail. Somebody had recognized him, and we were able to start tracing the trail, and we were able to find him as he had gone to be at the home of some friends from school. And when the door wh where he was opened up, there was both relief and joy. We found him. There was great joy. But did that mean that we didn't, we didn't love our other nephews and cousins as much? No. 
It was just a relief that a, a wanderer had been brought safely home. God is calling the church to care for its own. And the promise of the song that we read where God cares for his own, he's calling out to his people to care for his own, to be active in the community of faith, to receive and not deceive, and not despise, but to shelter and to raise and to build up and to help and to encourage these sheep that are wandering off. And when we bring them back, there is rejoicing. And lastly, we see willing. The Father loves his own. Verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think there's some deep theology here, but it reveals the shepherd heart of God. It is the Father's will on one level that none should perish. But how much more is it the Father's will that his sheep not perish. And this is, I think, deepened further by Jesus as he was in his discourses in the Gospel of John. Listen to what his promises are in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. These little sheep of the Father, he's not willing that any of them should perish, but they'd all come to the flock before it's too late. And part of the way that the will of the Father is accomplished is through the faithful shepherding and oversight of the church over those that the Lord has sent their way. The Lord loves his sheep. He knows them by name. He calls them. He cares for them. And if you're a follower of Christ, God loves you, knows you, promises to keep you and care for you, and you matter to him, whatever the world may say. And look at the heart of God here. Think of his love. In most situations, 99 out of 100 times would be celebrated. It would be seen as a great success. There would be great joy. But not with God. He wants them all. Those that he's given as we saw in John 6, to the Son. The ones that the Son purchased with His blood are the ones who are going to come safely home and God will not leave the job undone. Friends, have you heard His voice today? Calling you, come, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we have the promise that God will finish what He has started. For in Philippians 1, it says, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so there's joy in the rescuing of a sheep that has wandered away and, there, and is now recovered and is set free from sin. There's joy on earth and there's joy in heaven. And if they are his sheep, then we have the promise they will come home, but God will work in and through us through our persistent prayers, our persistent witnessing, our going and getting them, our counseling them, our pleading with them. But then we need to leave the tough cases with God. We don't know the heart of every person. We just know that God is at work and God's will will be accomplished. But we also know that not all will believe. And we also know that not all confessions of faith were actually possessions of faith. And there's a mystery there that we can't fully plumb. But we preach and we proclaim and we plead and we prod. And then we trust the Lord because the Lord also says that some may never come because they never belong to us in the first place. But we trust the Lord in those cases. Our little minds cannot found the mind of God. But it is enough for us to know that God is a good shepherd. And he loves his sheep. And he commands us to go and get those little ones as they're stumbling and fumbling 
So that, that requires us then to be aware and to be observant and to know and to be interested and to be obedient. And should we have that, not have that same attitude of a shepherd that just loves the sheep and that our hearts can't be at rest until we've done all that we can do as we pray and we pray and we pray. Who is the Lord giving you a burden for? Who's a loved one that you know young in the faith perhaps, but we'll broaden it, been longer in the faith, that you're praying will come back to the fold? Do we desire to go and get them? Do we desire to pray? We have a big battle as we do that because our culture works against us. Our sin nature works against us. We're in a culture that just values independence, just values the autonomy of the self, desires do your own thing and don't tread on me. Don't depend on anybody else. Be a self-made man. The problem is all that goes against the new covenant community that Christ is forming, that we are dependent upon him as the good shepherd, that he has created us and redeemed us so that we are interdependent and needy of one another and that we have to grow as a community. And so we need to continue to fight against the isolation tendencies that our culture puts us in and fight further for community so that we grow together, that we are together because it is the church that is God's plan A. And I have a secret for you. God has no plan B. So we need to be about the business of fostering an environment for true spiritual growth to take place because that is what the church is to be. So as we come to the end, when we realize we're now in the second part, uh, the second passage, major passage of this text of chapter 18, this requirement that goes out to the whole church, let's not be the ones who put obstacles in the way of others, but let's help build and grow the church the church that is to be the community of the redeemed that is growing, where restoration happens, where reconciliation can take place, where there can be the fellowship of the saints. We'll deal with sin appropriately. We'll even look at one example next week of what should happen when sin that has become public. But again, in the wisdom of God, we deal with each situation according to the wisdom that the Word of God will require in that situation. Who's on your heart this morning? that needs to come back and what can we do to encourage one another to continue to grow in a growing community when I study the surveys when I look at the attitudes that people have toward church there are many in our culture that are tempted to treat the church like a smorgasbord you know I like that I don't like that kind of like that I really don't like that and they pick and choose But God calls us to maturity, to holiness, to unity, not to our personal preferences. We live in an Uber Eats culture, but we're still called to be the body of Christ that serves one another. I hope that you will join me over the next several weeks as we continue to pray not only for the prodigals, but for ourselves. because I think there's some growth that needs to take place in my life and needs to take place in our lives. Next week, the Lord Jesus is going to instruct us on how to deal with sin. It's not an easy passage. This is not an easy chapter. But it's the word of God given for our edification. But until we get to that passage, what are some lessons that we can take away from today? Well, one, knowing that Jesus brings people to the church May he find us ready to receive and enfold them into our fellowship. What do we do when we see visitors? What do we do when we see people we don't know? Do we avoid them? Or do we move towards them to seek to enfold them? Because Jesus is the good shepherd, we will follow his example to go and bring back the little ones who have gone astray. Thirdly, because Jesus calls the whole church to seek out those who have strayed, we must each commit to doing our part in seeking 
they return. And lastly, because there is joy when those straying return home, we're ready to rejoice over the return of those who have gone astray. Let's be quiet for just a moment. And as we think about this passage, we think about our hearts, let's ask the Lord to do a work that only he can do in that cleansing and that challenging and that provoking and that prodding and that helping. And after a moment of reflection, then I'll close our time in prayer as the musicians come up to lead us in our final song. Father, how good it is for us to be put on our knees before you. How good it is for us to be humbled in your holy presence. And I pray that as we grasp in a deeper way who you really are, in your holiness and in your majesty and in your glory, and then to know that in your love, you bridge the gap between us and you so that we might become the children of God. And Father, how much we have to learn and what that means and how that looks in our daily lives and what that might imply for us. And so this morning, those names that have been on our hearts, we present them to you. And those sins that have been revealed to us, we confess to you. And we thank you for a Savior that is lavish in his forgiveness. But I thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you won't just leave us the way we are. You'll continue to draw us so that we become more like Jesus. And so we pray. Lord, give us a burden beyond ourselves, not only for the wandering not only for the straying, but for the lost. And that we would dedicate energies and efforts and activities to help bring them home as you strengthen us. So to that end we pray, Father, because we believe your word and because we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.